Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, May 12, 2011, and our special guest tonight is Dr. Paul Kimmelman, whose book is The School Leadership Triangle, From Compliance to Innovation. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here tonight, Steve. I think we must have some stiff competition. This is a small crowd for us. Um, I, I feel that I need to apologize, but uh, this is a recorded show, so uh, hopefully we'll be able to accomplish good things and encourage people to listen to the recording. Uh, the Future of Education is sponsored by the Web 2.0 Labs Project, uh, Classroom 2.0, the Global Education Conference, Library 2.0, ALA 2.0, and Student 2.0, also by Learn Central and Wimba Illuminate, which is now Blackboard Collaborate. Coming up. Um, on the 25th of June is our annual EduBloggerCon event. This is a really fun event. We get two or three hundred people uh, for an all-day-on conference the, the Saturday before the ISTE show. It is free. You don't need to be registered for ISTE to attend. We hope that you'll come. Just go to edubloggercon.com for more information. Also, of course, we have the Bloggers Cafe there, a hugely popular place to hang out, and the ISTE Unplugged series where anybody can present even if you've never presented before, and that's at istianplug.com. Uh, in November, we have announced dates for our second Global Education Conference, five days, 24 hours a day. Last year, we had over 400 presentations, 15,000 logins, presenters from 62 countries. It was a terrific event. This year, it will be November 14 to 18. should be a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Mark Fenske on his book, The Winner's Brain. I'm going to try and say Chris's last name here. Chris Guillebeau on the art of nonconformity. Steve Denning the week after that on radical management. Sir Ken Robinson on the revised version of Out of Our Minds. You can see lots more fun interviews coming up there. Hopefully, something that you'll be you'll find of value. If you missed last night's session with Hugh McGuire, the founder of LibriVox, it's delightful, fascinating. Uh, well worth listening to if you're interested in that kind of volunteer-led program. Uh, and Angela Myers, Amy Sandvold, George Coros, and Lisa Nielsen, two panel sessions on passion-based education. Um, really a lot of fun. One, the closing session at the ASCII virtual conference, the other um, here on the Future of Education. Both are up at futureofeducation.com in the recording section. If this is your first time at Illuminate, and for an audience of this size, I'm not going to worry too much. You can put a note in the chat if you're having any trouble. But of course, there is the chat area. I do recommend you go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. And it will give you an, an easier view of the chat. And we're going to give you a chance right now to indicate where you're listening from. So look for the wand to the left of the map. Click on it. That's the wand with the red star at the end. And you can click on the map. <coughs> you can also put just put in the chat where you're listening from, the time and the temperature. Anything else you want to tell us about yourself? Looks like a couple in California. Somebody trying to find a southern state. New Zealand, gotta love it. DC. Again, with a group this size, this gives you lots of chance to participate. I hope you will. This is going to be, I guarantee, a fun conversation. So, uh, Paul, um, this was a fascinating book for me. Uh, fascinating, uh, intriguing in a lot of ways, because you're trying to connect compliance, leadership, and innovation, uh, topics that don't normally go together. Uh, you're you're trying to put them in a framework, and, and I'm wondering, you know, if you don't, uh, if you didn't wonder why you were going through the process, if there wasn't a good reason these aren't normally together, but it, there's a pragmatic quality to the book that I think comes from your background. So would you give us a little bit of um, a history of who you are and what brought you to this unique combination of ideas? Sure. <coughs> Thank you. Welcome everyone. Um, I am very fortunate to have had a very interesting career. Um, I began as a teacher in, in, in a three-building high school, a very large high school, um, many years ago, and taught in 
the ninth grade, and it was um, a school that was consistently looking for new ideas and ways to improve. So for me, it was a great um, opportunity to mentor. So I taught ninth grade for five years, then left and became an assistant high school principal for one year. While there, um, I was asked if I was interested in going to a middle school to become principal and, and did that for six years, then became an assistant superintendent for six, year, six years, and um, then I was a superintendent for um, slightly over 13 years. And um, so I put in a little over 33 years in K-12 education and have had an opportunity to um, teach as an adjunct at a number of colleges and universities um, throughout that time. So um, I've had fortunate experiences and some good, some bad, um, but hopefully have learned from all of them. Well, for the first couple of hours that I was involved in the book, I had a really hard time placing you within the, the current reform context. So as we go through this, I'm going to propose some of the things that I think you're saying, and I'm hoping you're going to clarify and, and let me know exactly what you have said. But my feelings about your message actually changed as I read the book. Um, to, to make it clear here, though, there is a specific audience for this book, and, and it's your hope that it will be used uh, specifically in some study groups. So who, who are you writing to? Um, that, that's an interesting question that I've been asked um, before. When I was writing the book, I was um, primarily writing it for education practitioners to use in a study group to organize innovative thinking uh, around their school improvement initiatives. One of the things that I tried to avoid in this book is not giving people the ingredients for the menu, but rather to create a framework upon which they could then work in their own context to get to a point where they would address the notion of how do we organize an innovative culture in our work to achieve greater success using those bold new ideas, something that you know I, I just don't think happens a lot in, in the general education environment. And um, I think we need to make those opportunities available to practitioners so that they can engage in innovative thinking in, in much the same way that um, our colleagues in the business world have the opportunity to um, create um, innovative opportunities for their employees to come up with those new ideas. So I want to give a synopsis of what I took away from the book, and then I want you to tell me where I got it wrong. But you, let's see how I do. So the dilemma that I feel is inherent in the book is that we're going to, we can expect to see increased federal interest in and legislation related to schooling. And yet, we're going to need to create educational environments that are less about compliance and more about engagement, both of the teachers and the students. And so in the middle of this sits the administrator who has kind of the job of, um, of uh, I'm going to look for the right word, embracing and leveraging the compliance requirements placed on him or her, but creating a much more inclusive environment below him or her. So did I, was I even close? Yeah, I think I think that um, you're perfect. You're perfectly aligned, um, and it, it's interesting. I I just had this conversation today because I'm working. A state team is using this book um, to to sort of organize their own innovation culture, and and I think you're on the the key point that you addressed is that you know I grew up through the traditional model of of schooling that. Um, you taught and then you went on for your master's degree and your doctorate and you became a school administrator. You started as an assistant then you became a principal and then you may have worked as an assistant superintendent and a superintendent. It was, it was the traditional climbing of the ladder and functioning in a bureaucratic environment where 
the principal and the superintendent were always looked upon as the formal leaders. And, and that model isn't the model of organizations today. And, and what, you, what you just suggested was that um, part of what I wrote in the book was this notion that we write about distributed leadership in schools or teacher leadership and, and we ask the teachers to take on these responsibilities but we don't necessarily provide the support and the background and training for them to engage effectively in the task that we are assigning them. And so it was my hope that we would start to look at a different model of leadership in schools where we would give teachers more background in the theories and practical aspects of leadership so that they could understand that there, there are consequences about leadership, particularly when you're working with your colleagues, and understanding the consequences that might be associated with taking on those leadership responsibilities. But then even more importantly, giving teachers the responsibility for organizing um, and facilitating innovation teams to address those most critical problems that the schools are working with to improve their results under the compliance provisions that um, they're working on. So this is really going to be fun. Um, I, I want to move into the compliance section. The book's divided into the three sections that are implied in the, in the triangle, compliance, leadership, and innovation. Before we do so, you have this imagine slide. So wh yeah. What do you use this yeah. for? Um, I think that is a very powerful word, and it is the work that educators are undertaking today um, is really challenging. And and I, you know, I want to reach out and say that the work that the principals, superintendents, and teachers, and all those who are working inside the field today um, have incredibly challenging tasks. And the most powerful word that I think we can put before them as we start these initiatives is the word imagine. Trying to get the group to focus on imagining what it is that they want to accomplish and creating that vision so that everyone is working together to get to the same point um, in the end. So I found myself in the book in the compliance section uh, really vacillating is I tried to understand your perception of the federal mandates. Um, because I think at one, one and the same time, you make it clear that these are you know, maybe the most uh, intrusive uh, or sanction-laden uh, federal involvement that we've ever had in education. And yet at the same time, you're trying very, to be very respectful and understand the motivations and what created the environment that led to no child left behind and, and other forms of expectation from a federal level. Um, were you conscious of being very careful there? Um, my, that's a great question. Um, my, one of my primary responsibilities at the American Institutes for Research is federal policy. So I spend a good deal of time um, on Capitol Hill and meeting with congressional staff and um, some members. And what I've learned over the years is to have a deep respect for the very diverse viewpoints that members of Congress have regarding federal issues, particularly education. Um, and in my job, my work really involves trying to help in federal policy achieve success with the agenda and not to be an ideologue who is out there um, criticizing the decisions that they make. And so, for example, in the book, you'll, um, one of the challenges that I had when starting to write this book was that um, the, our CEO at Learning Point Associates, we, we used to be Learning Point Associates and now we've merged with the American Institutes for Research recently, um, but our CEO had talked about compliance, leadership, and innovation in a staff meeting with us a number of years ago and it ultimately 
became my project to try to put these three often disconnected concepts together. And it was it was very challenging for me. It took a, a long time to try to figure out where do you even begin because it isn't like these necessarily are sequential. Um, but in, in the compliance and the federal officials, you know, I, I've had a wonderful opportunity in my career to work with members of Congress and um, people who have incredible national visibility. I served on the Glenn Commission with former astronaut and Ohio Senator John Glenn and I've, I've had more time listening to the different perspectives that these members have. And so when I was writing this book, um, I'm proud of the fact that there's one member who spends a considerable amount of time with me who believes there is absolutely no federal role in education whatsoever. Um, and we spend a great deal of time disagreeing about it. And um, I've always been um, somewhat um, interested in the fact that here I am sitting in an office with a member of Congress disagreeing with him about what he believes um, just because I personally have a belief that there is a federal role in education and then talking to other members of Congress who, who have different opinions but many who believe there is a federal role. And so my sense is, is that there's far too much adversarial type of a discussion and, and not enough respect for trying to understand the perspectives of others and it often becomes an obstacle to trying to get the things done that need to be done. And I look back to when NCLB was originally um, passed and, and, and approved and signed by the President and President Bush in 2002 and uh, there was so many years spent kicking it and, and, and criticizing it as opposed to trying to just dig in and, and work carefully on those fundamental principles that almost all educators in meetings that I spoke at agreed upon. There was very little, if any, disagreement with the fundamental principles. There were the procedural pieces. And, and today we, we have, to, almost to a member of Congress, there, no one says that this law doesn't need substantial change. But it kick-started a different culture in education where we're looking at things differently. And, and I just think that um, exercising due respect to members of Congress was very important to me and that I, I did respect all their viewpoints and was certainly appreciative of the time that they gave me to um, sit down and, and, and interview with me with um, no holds barred. I mean, they just gave me their thoughts about compliance, leadership, and innovation. So one of the points you make is that uh, mistakes were made meaning the, the intentions were, you, you are ascribing good uh, intentions to the legislation, but you felt there were some ways in which they, you know, they sort of uh, ignored constituencies or mandated rather than involved in discussion. Do you want to describe that kind of briefly? Can you, can you say that again? There was sort of some static that came through. Oh, sorry. So you do recognize that mistakes were made in such a way that, that, that sort of invited the pushback. What were those? Um, clearly, AYP, the Adequate Yearly Progress Provision, was one in which um, there was um, really not much understanding about the unintended consequences that came as a result of it. Um, some lead staff said in the year after um, NCLB was passed that this isn't working out the way they had expected it. But what we really didn't, the implementation process as it came through the Department of Education didn't carry a lot of explanation for educators and certainly didn't engage them very much in trying to better understand where these problem areas Really, were, really were, and so for AYP, for example, it's an incredibly broad statistical analysis of of student achievement that doesn't really measure student achievement. Um, it was just a one-time test 
taken at a given point in the year and an entire school was being judged on, on that performance. And um, members of Congress heard incredibly loud voices um, in opposition to it. And, and the problem was that there wasn't a lot of discussion about, well, what would work better? Um, a good example of that is that um, Secretary Page um, appointed a teacher um, advisory panel, I think that's what it was called, it was a number of years ago, where there was a team of us, there, there was a, a large number of people, and then there were teams assigned to go to states to talk about the highly qualified teacher provisions. I can't think of a state that I went to where we accomplished much because most of the discussion was about why the house, that, that framework for identifying who would be a highly qualified teacher um, wouldn't work. And what we really um, needed was a much richer discussion, a collaboration among the people who really work in the field and getting their input as to how the house could be improved. And, and so that is where we are now with Congress um, not reauthorizing the Elementary Secondary Education Act at this point. And it will be interesting to see if um, that gets done even this year. Um, the, the, the hearings, as I have heard, there will be bills released to be discussed in hearings um, either later this month or early June. And this will be the opportunity for um, all of us to engage in how we want this new big bill to look so that it, it does what all of us want, and that is to help improve the quality of education in America so that we're a competitive country and not be um, a punishment-driven bill, but rather a bill that provides incentives and opportunities for educators to succeed um, in their work. Um, and hopefully that will happen. Um, we have to keep in mind, NCLB was an 1,100-page bill. And inside that 1,100 pages is, is, is a lot of material and requirements that um, just have not worked as well as they have been expected to. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate, but I'm guessing you've heard this before. So um, in, in one section of the book, uh, I noted that you talked about sort of the degree to which NCLB was the result of frustration, that um, uh, programs weren't working and achievement wasn't getting any better. One way to view that would be that federal involvement itself doesn't work, no matter how well-intentioned or, um, or how much we believe that it would make a difference. Is it... Is is there an argument to be made that this is sort of a classic institutional pathology, the belief that we can fix it uh, through this kind of legislation? And, and when you hear that, how do you respond? Well, um, as you're being a devil's advocate, I would only say that um, I'm living here in Mississippi, very close on the border of Memphis, and there are a lot of people who have suffered a great deal of adversity as the Mississippi River floods their homes and does incredible damage along the way. And the, the safeguard for them is going to be a federal role that will come in and help them. Um, when we suffer major catastrophes in this country, we look to federal involvement. And I think the, the answer that I would give you to what you said is that there is a federal role in education that can provide support to help states and school districts achieve success. Um, the debate, and it, it's so highly contentious, and, and I don't have an answer to resolving that debate, is that um, what what that role is going to be. You, you have one side that believes that um, the federal role should be intrusive and should be very specific and should have um, specific expectations for the use of federal funding. 
And then you have another side that believes if there is going to be a federal investment in education that those funds should be at the discretion of the states and school districts to determine how they're going to be used to achieve the goals. Oh, well, one nice thing about the book is it kind of takes us away from that and says essentially, I felt in a very pragmatic way, whatever you believe, it's not going away. So let's talk about how you deal with it. And, and, and again, what I heard was this sort of middle management uh, absorption of the compliance piece, but then being very good at spreading the leadership and innovation. So um, um, let, why don't we move on from there and uh, sort of acknowledge that uh, there may be differences of opinion, but, but you feel like, if I'm accurate, um, we, we sort of have to accept this. And we now try and figure out how to do the best that we can, knowing that we want to provide um, in leadership for innovation within the schools. So is, is that fair? Do we want to talk any more about the compliance piece? You know, I, I think that's fair. Let me, but let me just make a final point about the compliance piece that what the current administration and U.S. Department of Education are promulgating is even greater compliance and more challenging requirements than what we had under NCLB. So the notion that it's going to go away is what I've tried to um, suggest isn't going to happen. And so those of us in education are going to have to work carefully to figure out how we're going to achieve the, the requirements, how we're going to be successful at accomplishing what's being expected of us in an environment that's going, as, as Secretary Duncan has said, which is the new normal, doing more with less. And, 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 and I'm only the messenger, so don't kill the messenger, but, but we all know that the amount of funding that is available to continue to support education at both the federal and state levels is diminishing and the expectations are increasing. And it, it's programs like what you have on Illuminate, just this technological platform that you make available to the world to do things. And, and even in my book, you know, I noted that someone from New Zealand is on this call. And Neil Pitches from New Zealand is one of the peer persons who I interviewed for this book um, on literacy because New Zealand is so highly regarded in literacy. So I, I just think that all of our listeners have to just understand that these compliance provisions aren't going to be diluted in any way uh, if, if the current thinking is going to stay in place. You know, I, I think that's really a valuable point to make because one of the pieces that I think often hampers um, those who are talking about reform is this desire for consistency. So in some ways you kind of break that, which is, um, the, you're saying, okay, there's not going to be a parallel consistency between the leaders who provide for these more innovative, um, engaged, uh, collaborative environments uh, in their own structure. But, but they, you know, uh, that doesn't mean they can't provide it. Meaning, just because they're in a highly compliant environment doesn't mean that they have to turn around and be highly um, demanding of compliance. Uh, as you move down to the level of the teacher in the school and the student. You have a couple more slides here, and I want to make sure that if there were things you wanted to talk about that you could. Um, I've put up the one that has Supreme Court, Congress, <laughs> Department of Ed. Um, very quickly, that's just uh, one that I use that's the elephant in the room, obviously, for federal compliance. These are the three entities which really provide the federal compliance provisions that we all have to uh, adhere to. And then here's this, did you want to mention anything yeah. on this quote? Well, quickly, Congressman Rush Holt, who I served on the Glenn Commission with, um, Mr. Holt is from New Jersey. Interestingly, Mr. Holt is actually a scientist um, by profession. But I thought the, the red portion of what I've written about pretty well summarized what I got from most members of Congress when I talked to them, and, and that is just that portion about the federal compliance is what they believe necessary 
um, to ensure that the um, accountability um, for success is being met. And um, I know we give that a lot of kickback, those of us in education, but it's a reality that's out there and, and it isn't going to go away. So we need to find ways to work with it and, and make our work successful to achieve what they're requiring. Okay, so that's a good spot to kind of move on. Uh, and I appreciate that you've been so thoughtful about that. And in the book, you're, you know, you're so balanced. Uh, clearly, you believe that, um, that there's value in compliance-driven legislation. Um, but, but moving past that allows us to not have to quibble over that and, and to kind of accept it as a reality. So if we move to leadership, I was continually reminded in the book of my experiences with total quality management and Deming and a lot of the what I would call sort of the, the higher-minded TQM principles. Is that something that you actually studied while you were an administrator? Yeah, we go. I go back to to Deming's work. In fact, I've got a book and a workbook sitting right here in my office um, of Deming's work. Um, but the key piece that I wanted everyone to take away from leadership is that um, after over a hundred years of research on leadership, there there is no one single formula or elixir that is going to define a great leader, that, um, that you have to be who you are and, and connect with the people that you're working with to get them to um, accept your vision um, and your goals and to work collaboratively with you to achieve them. Um, it, it's a very different society today with respect to um, expectations for leaders. When I grew up, the, the principal of the school, as a student, you, you, you feared the principal. You knew that when the principal gave an order, you followed it. You didn't ask why. And in today's environment, it, it's more about asking why. And, and so people, people might be compliant, but they don't like compliance driven um, at them. And so effective leaders um, have to really have this ability to connect well with with their followers. And so I'm suggesting for um, people to think about who, who are great leaders, who are people that you've followed. And it doesn't necessarily, I use um, famous leaders because that resonates with all audiences. But when I get into discussions with participants, you start to hear people talk about their mother, their father, their cousin, people that, that you, don't, you don't read about, but they actually are um, recognized as having been great leaders. And these are some of the leadership theories that um, are out there that have been studied over time. And there's no one theory uh, that is going to guarantee any person success in leadership, that they're going to have to be able to work their way through the map of these theories so that they can apply them in, in an understandable way that's effective for them in a given situation. So I took away sort of two additional points from this section. One was that even though there are a variety of leadership theories and ways to be a good leader, that it's really important to study leadership and that it's important to study it because in this role of absorbing compliance and then providing for innovation, you have to be a good leader. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And, and it's tough because who wants to, you know, one of the things I had to do beginning in 2002 um, for, in my work was to go out and speak on NCLB to educators. And, and that, you know, the messenger, and try to explain the law. And I never, ever had a happy audience, um, one that was excited about the topic, nor did they agree with, with the law. And, and so you had to think about how do you sort of break down this initial resistance to it. And, and so you, you have to ask some questions. I mean, when you said to someone, would you want your child or grandchild in a classroom with someone who isn't a highly qualified teacher? Or would you want your child to go to a school where 
there is a high percentage of students who are not achieving um, proficiency on the state test, you didn't see a lot of hands go up. And so the, the fundamental underpinnings of the law made sense to them, but the provisions that were the sanction-driven provisions um, created problems. And so leaders really needed to ex need to exercise some of these sort of traits that are up there. These are just some of what often comes up. One um, that isn't there is vision, but vision is clearly one of the most important things that, that a leader has to exhibit and, and demonstrate to, to the people that he or she is working with. But all these others are important, but not one of them is necessarily any more important than the other. So I want to dive a little deeply here um, because I really enjoyed this section. At the same time, I kept thinking about this sort of democratization of the world that you've just described, where you know the superintendent or the principal is no longer carries sort of inherent authority. Um, I think we've seen that in the family as well. Sort of the, the mom and the dad don't have the authority culturally that we used to. Um, and it feels to me that what we're seeing in the Middle East is, again, a reflection of the degree to which technologies are shifting power, uh, both political and cultural power, and also the power to shape kind of the narratives within which we live. So we've talked about this on the show before. You know, in Egypt, the people are saying we we don't we're not comfortable not being a part of the narrative of governance in Egypt, and we want some power. So recognizing this democratization effect, also recognizing the value of leadership, are we also seeing at the same time potentially a larger shift in which our traditional ways of thinking still institutionally about how things will get done? are potentially going to get upended. Is, is there the possibility that uh, these technologies will kind of dramatically change um, who who's actually making decisions? And I know I've gone on here a little bit, but I'll give an example. So what we're seeing, I think, in a lot of um, businesses is that more and more the customers are actually defining the product, saying this is what we want to buy. So. Uh, companies actually shifting their focus based on the huge amount of opportunity, the huge opportunity that the users now have to have a voice in responding. Um, you can't go to a restaurant now without looking it up on the web and seeing what people think of the restaurant. Does this change the game at all in terms of uh, shifting us out of this democratization pattern to a, a significant flipping? Um. I, this isn't a politically correct or a popular statement to make, but I think what you've just talked about is potentially um, the game changer of public education if we don't achieve the kind of success that some of these federal compliance provisions are driving. Um, if, if you look at um, the support for public schools, it's waning. Uh, and, and people are less willing to pay increased taxes to support schools in their communities. You see overall more and more school funding issues fail at the local level. Uh, you're seeing at the federal level Congress working on budgets that are eliminating programs, um, they're, they're um, combining some programs so that there's fewer federal programs, and states are being caught in the middle in declining resources, um, and, and even countries like New Zealand, they just don't have the funding to do this. And this democratization through technology that you're talking about in not too many years, because it's for the most part here now, is going to empower parents and students to get education whenever, wherever, and however. Um, and, and while it, it takes generations to go through certain kinds of changes, the fact is that students can go online 
and they can go to online programs for the most part anywhere in the world uh, and they can be tutored from anywhere in the world, mentored um, in ways that have never been possible so that this institution that we have known as school for so long um, is beginning to disintegrate and, and unfortunately sometimes these situations are the old adage we heard about boiling the frog in water that if you if the frog jumps in the water and it boils for a while it, it just doesn't jump out um, and, and so we've got to be really concerned as public if we believe in public education and, and retaining the institution we're going to have to be receptive to looking at a new model just as businesses uh, have to look at a new business model and that probably the great metaphor for us in education would be just look at how General Motors has had to change in a very short period of time in order to survive. The big difference being the federal government invested heavily to save it. We did go deep there. I'm, I'm intrigued by this because it, you know, it feels like we have this, we have this understanding that what, what's going on in Egypt and these Arab countries is of huge significance but will be really difficult. And that we don't have a lot of good cultural structures for this flip, for, for harnessing positive power when, when the power shifts so dramatically. And I think in part that's why I keep coming back to the TQM models because I feel like there is such promise in what you describe in terms of innovative practices and inviting innovation that could encompass larger constituencies. Meaning if we expand beyond just looking at the teachers but also looking to the parents and the students and providing similar kinds of opportunities that the model actually could grow a little. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, I, I, it's going to take a real willingness on all of our parts to work together to get there. The slide that you just put up, um, I interviewed um, Mr. Boehner prior to his being elected Speaker of the House, but one of the questions that I asked him, and I should interject at this point that I wanted to incorporate in this book um, pieces throughout the book in their own words so that readers would not be reading what I thought, but rather hearing um, and seeing exactly what those who were writing the laws thought. And Mr. Boehner was one of the key writers of No Child Left Behind. And, you know, so I asked him, so what's it going to take with school leaders um, for the next iteration of NCLB? And, you know, I thought it was, um, an interesting comment to hear him say, if we keep our focus on what's in the best interest of the kids, we'll make the right decisions. And so that's pretty broad in general, and we don't know how Mr. Boehner will fall in, in the end, because right now as a speaker, he's working with a party and, and members of Congress who want substantial reductions in funding at a time when there's this hue and cry to make America more competitive in the 21st century and the pathway to being highly competitive and doing things in the best interest of our kids will be to provide incentives for the education institutions to be successful and do what they're going to have to do. And so um, there's some rocks and hard places I think down the way for all of us and, and particularly members of Congress as they review what we're going to do. I think this is going to be really interesting and I'm going to draw a parallel here which I'm not sure is fair, but I know that a couple of years ago there was an attempt by the State Department to bring some of the leaders of the Web 2.0 companies over to the Arab nations to sort of help facilitate transformations to democracy and that didn't do it. What really did it was just that the tools of communication were available to those who had passionate interest in making change. 
So I often wonder if uh, we're more when we look back on this period of time at whatever changes take place, that we'll discover it had a lot less to do with um, sort of determined efforts to change and had more to do with the degree to which technology just allowed people to gather together in new ways and, and create their own solutions. Well, I like that. I mean, I think that's leading to the innovation process. Um, you mentioned the Arab nations, and, and I would say that in some of the Arab nations, not only is there a considerable amount of money to to undergo change, but there's a high degree of motivation in those countries, some of them, to um, radically change and improve their educational systems. And one in particular, I can't mention it, but it is trying to put together um, a group uh, to help that country redo its education system. Uh, I, I know about it firsthand because I've been asked to help on, on, on this project if, it, if in fact it does become a reality. So um, change is in the air and, and it's, change is not easy, but it, it's necessary. And we're at a point if we want to, as I said previously, if we want to maintain a viable public education system, we're going to have to look at a whole new concept of what public education means to communities and not, and I'm not specifically speaking to just um, the, the children and students in the community, but to the entire community. Um, and, and I, so I think it's going to be really important for us to take this innovation process to the next level. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, kinds of um, environments needed for innovation. And innovation is an interesting word because it can have kind of a variety of connotations. Um, some, my, my brother who's a professor of innovation would make the argument that uh, most innovations are actually uh, sort of accidental, that we, that we have a fallacy that where we believe that um, uh, we ha have discovered something because we were interested in a solution to a particular problem, that usually a solution is invented and then it gets kind of retroactively applied to something that makes sense. But, but if you look at Kaizen and total quality management and Toyota Factory, you see a use of the word innovation which is more kind of involving people in improvement processes. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things do you believe strongly in need to happen to provide for that environment for innovation? I'm really passionate about this one and, and I think it's um, educators don't have the same playing field that businesses had to go through the innovation cycle. Um, by that, I'm suggesting that we really don't provide educators with the training, the context, and the opportunity to engage in highly innovative thinking to solve problems. So, um, just to be sure that we're operating on a shared and common language, I define innovation as a new solution to an old problem that brings about substantially improved results. And um, when, when I'm speaking with a group, I try, particularly because I'm, I'm always talking with educators, uh, when you talk about innovations, it's difficult for them to really get down to the basic premise of what is a transformational innovation in education. And, and so I try to offer an example of what is a transformational innovation um, so that it's, it's graphic and it's real. And, and one of the examples that, that I use is that um, cataract surgery many, many years ago was, was done in a way that required um, a long recovery period. It was painful. Um, the patient couldn't move. And we've gone from that to using much more refined scalpels and lasers and eye surgery where it's essentially 
painless, and I can say that because I've had three cataract surgeries. Um, it's, it's relatively painless. You're in by nine, you're out by noon, and the results tend to be very good. And, and so there, in, in medicine, there are many things that are transformational, and, they're, and it's very difficult for us to find any in education where we've come a long way, particularly if you think about how many years we've devoted to special education and why in this country we have such an incredible need to increase the research and development budget from edu for education. That, that it, it's almost um, incredible to believe that roughly only 1% of the um, education budget is devoted to research and development in education. And we really need more in the science and, and research end for teaching and learning so that we can provide better tools and resources for teachers to be more effective at what they do. On the other side of that, in that next slide that you did bring up, um, there, is, um, some, there are simple um, innovations that have been equally as transformational. I mean, you think back 100 years to Johann Wehler um, in, in coming up with a paper clip, and, and we use that today, and, and it's not very complicated, but it certainly does an incredible job of what it was intended to do. Um, the other one is Bernard Serdo's um, innovation of combining luggage with wheels. That has been transformational to the luggage industry. It, has made, it, it was a new solution to an old problem of people for many years ago having to carry very heavy suitcases. And now, and now you roll them and you see that they continue to build new ideas upon new ideas. And so what I'm suggesting and in the book, if you can read about the Clay Street Theater of Innovation at Procter & Gamble, there, there are opportunities for um, people in the corporate world to go away for, for two weeks and process a problem, to come up with new solutions, new ideas that are guided by trained facilitators that have a diverse membership so that there's a variety of perspectives that are being brought to the table to, to help them try to solve the problem. And then you build prototypes of the problem, you work with them, you evaluate them, and you continue to refine them with the idea that hopefully they'll work. And so for me, I, I am hopeful that we could create innovation teams in schools led by teachers who have gotten the leadership training that they need, who have been taught how to facilitate an innovation process, um, and address those most egregious problems that they're trying to comply with to succeed so that they can get new ideas. Because I, I clearly mentioned in the book that I think the knowledge to solve the problems of education um, actually resides with those who are doing the educating. It's just that we don't create opportunities, and for a variety of reasons. I'm not laying blame on anyone other than to suggest that we don't have these two-week innovation opportunities to get into these innovation theaters to really process new and different ideas and to address the problems. And so that is one of the premises of my book, that if, if you have the opportunity to just quickly read the book, you'll build the knowledge capacity to assemble a group to organize an innovation team to address your most critical issues. So to what degree is, is this, because I love that piece, and, I, and, I, and, I, and again, I, I would agree with that, the, you know, the book being a really good method for getting into um, you know, a team-like improvement environment. But one of the things that occurred to me was that a lot of the innovation that comes about in something like teaching is human relations related. It's, a, it's about creating structures that may not actually be new, but they're the remembering of ways of interacting. And, and I thought of an example like uh, class meetings, right, and the degree to which we have a lot of research showing that um, from a psychology perspective that, that the involving of students in decision making in their classes makes a big difference. How does that kind of information or innovation um, fit into this? And is that maybe part of the reason that it's hard, we have a hard time transferring innovation because it's so much of it in schools is, is sort of people related? Well, um, certainly people related 
is important. Um, I'm not sure that uh, the class the class meetings are solving are intended to solve the problem, but it's what occurs during those class meetings that may come up with that tangible solution. Um, I, I often ask the question, tell me one of the greatest innovations that you can talk about in education. And um, one of the best answers I ever got, and, and it's pretty basic, what came from a um, Chicago teacher um, who was in one of my classes who said, movable desks. And when you think back to many, many years ago when desks were bolded to the group, to the floor and they were in rows, teachers were only able to deliver instruction basically to students who were in those rows. But once you unbolted the desk, much like that um, suitcase with wheels, uh, teachers were able to transform um, into very different instructional delivery systems, um, grouping, uh, differentiated assignments, uh, a whole host of kinds of things, which probably was one of the most innovative things that had been done to transform one period of education to the next, which I thought was really a very good example. So I get the sense also that you're you're basically you didn't say this specifically. These are my words, but. You, you can't have innovations if you don't reward innovation or create a culture that's tolerant of mistakes getting to innovation. So again, I see that as this job of the individual sort of absorbing the compliance on the one side, but also then allowing for change and, and sometimes failure on the other side. Um, certainly. Um, that, um, I think that summarizes it um, quite well. Okay, so our, we've got, we didn't really do a good job of the Q&A here, and I apologize for that, but this was so compelling that I got lost track of time. Um, the final question I wanted to ask is, uh, why is there so much acrimony in the debate right now? And, and how are there ways to get to more civil dialogue that we're, that we're not seeing that we should be sort of promoting? Wow, um, great question again. and. You know, I, I sort of glanced over a little bit at some of the chat comments, and you can, you can see there are some people um, who are in the chat who I, I detect really don't like NCLB, and, and it's very understandable. Um, I, I think one of the big problems is people have dug their heels in. Members of Congress are fixed on their positions, various educators are fixed on their positions, and there's no national sense of, look, we've all got to pitch in and figure out a way to compromise certain things to build a better system. Um, and, and ultimately, that, that's where we're going to have to, to go, and the federal government is going to have to try to provide some incentives to help people do it. I mean, I think about an organization like the one I work for, American Institutes for Research. We're, we're out there. We have an incredibly talented, large group of people all over the world who work in school turnaround, teacher quality, high school centers, um, evaluation, research and development, technical assistance. We do all of those things. Um, and if schools don't have the, the funds available to utilize this kind of expertise to help them in much the same way that corporations are consistently calling in um, consulting firms to help them process through their critical problems, they're not going to be able to do it. And so we've got to try to work collaboratively to convince um, Congress that the federal role has to be providing support for states and school districts to use some of their own expertise to get to where they need to go, and also to ensure that they're supporting um, education, research, and development to help find what actually works um, and works well. Paul, we, we try and do a really good job of ending on time here. 
So I'm going to clap for you. I, I have to tell you, I really appreciated spending time with you. I really enjoyed the sort of dialogue that, that uh, the book allowed me to have on this topic. Um, and, and thank you for coming um, to, to speak with us tonight. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. And for all those that were um, online, there is my email address. And I would just appreciate hearing from you. If you have any questions or comments, I'd um, be happy to hear from you and to engage in any conversation with you. Um, if you'd like to contact me. Thank you so much. So we've been talking with Dr. Paul Kimmelman about his book, The School Leadership Triangle from Compliance to Innovation. Uh, really a delightful conversation. Appreciate your being here or listening to the recording. Next week, uh, Mark Fenske on his book, The Winner's Brain, and Chris Guillebeau, I think I'm saying that somewhat close, on the art of nonconformity. And of course, uh, Sir Ken Robinson coming up again, uh, coming back to the show on the 25th. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Thank you, uh, Paul, for being here. Most appreciated.